Well, good morning, everyone. I uh, invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 11. We're in the series called Jesus and Genesis, where we are looking um, at where we see Jesus Christ in this first book of the Bible. We believe that Genesis opens up this big storyline of Scripture, this one story, and it sets the stage. And we're going to look at um, an interesting story in Genesis chapter 11. So if you brought your Bible, wonderful, please bring your Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you or the seat kind of in front to the left or right. You can find one of our Bibles and turn to page 10 if you're using one of those. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to have one. And you can see me after the worship service, and I will be glad to get you a Bible. And we're going to start with verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there... The Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, Genesis 11 is an odd story. And uh, if you've been coming to church for a while, it's one that you're probably familiar with. Um, Read it in children's Bibles and kids' storybooks. And it's just kind of an odd story uh, with people doing some strange things and God doing some strange things. And we have to look at it in the context of this big story that God is uh, leading us through to uh, make sense of it. So um, I want to talk about a few kind of essentials of understanding Genesis chapter 11. First of all, um, I want you to recognize there's a parallel here with the Garden of Eden. It's kind of important to see this. Um, In the Garden of Eden, uh, there was a commission given to human beings, Adam and Eve, and that commission was to, 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 to build a society, a civilization, um, a city, if you will, without the skyscrapers necessarily, the beginning of the garden. But God said, I want you to be fruitful and fill the earth and to take care of this garden, to rule over creation. Take care of this garden, build a civilization. And in the Garden of Eden, God gave the man and the woman limits. He gave humankind limits as a gift, and yet Adam and Eve, they chose to try to live beyond those limits. God said, um, don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of God and e- good and evil. Um, that's the limit I'm placing on you. And they chose to um, live beyond that limit, and because of that, there's a consequence, and there was expulsion from the garden. That was a consequence. And in Genesis chapter 11, we see something similar going on. There is the building of a civilization. 
going on, just like God's commission to Adam and Eve and humankind. They're building a, a civilization, a city, and God gives them a limit, and that is, I want you to do things with me. And they were not doing things with God in this story. They chose to live beyond that limit, and there's a consequence, and that consequence was an expulsion from that area. And so you may be thinking, okay, so this is just another story of a, uh, a building project gone bad. What, you know, what's, what's new? What, what's the difference between um, here and, and the other building stories gone bad in Genesis uh, chapter 2, 3 in the garden? What Genesis chapter 11 does is it sets up God's response to this. And God's response to this is the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible story is God's response to um, what happens in the first 11 chapters of Genesis and Genesis chapter 11 ending that. Um, So there's parallels with Eden. Two, you have to know to understand Genesis 11 that this is a mocking story. Um, We must understand the story if we think that God is threatened by what the people are doing. And sometimes you might get that idea because you look at at verse uh, 6 where God says, listen, if people are united like this, speaking one language, and they're building this tower, then then anything that they set their mind to will will be possible for them. And and we might mistakenly think that's God feeling threatened. Oh, no, what are they going to do? Um, And it's not. This is a mocking story. Uh, Look at verse 3. The people uh, said to each other, Come, let's make bricks. Let's bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And that last sentence right there is is a snicker. It is Moses who wrote the snickering at this this group of people because the ancient Israelites, uh, they used stone. They used mortar in their buildings. And here's this earlier people that's using clay and they're they're making mud bricks. And Moses is just kind of laughing at them. Like, if you're going to build a tower... You think you'd use something strong like like stone, but they were using mud and and tar. Not a real national honor society engineering move on their part. And he's just kind of making fun of them. And uh, a third thing to know is there is a deliberate climax to Genesis chapter 11. And Moses is using just kind of standard storytelling structure in this. In that, you won't be able to, I'm not going to show you a slide on this, but you can kind of look at this on your own. Uh, there's this little pyramid structure. There's bookends in his storytelling. Well, he'll make a point in the story, and then later on he brings that same point in, and he kind of does that parallel and makes this little pyramid structure. So um, look at verse uh, 1. Verse 1 refers to the whole world. Uh, so does the end of verse 9, the whole world. Verse 2 mentions one language. Well, earlier in verse 9, mentions God confusing their language. Verse 3 says, they settled there. Verse 8 says that the Lord scattered them from there. Verse 4 says, come let us. Verse 7, come let us. Um, And so there's this little pyramid structure kind of on its side where you can think of it like this. And in the middle of the storytelling is the climax, and everyone knows it, listening to the story in 
ancient culture. What's the climax of the story? It is verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. So this story is about what God does. It's not God coming down, seeing this as a threat. He's not coming down as a killjoy. Oh, I'm going to put an end to their fun. You know, he, he wasn't doing that. What was God doing in coming down? He was actually saving the city. He was saving the citizens of this city. How? By short-circuiting the effects of pride. And that's what I want to talk about today. What is pride? What does pride move us to do? And how do we get free from from pride? So let's start with a general description of what pride is. Pride is the unrelenting focus on the self. Uh, We often think of pride as thinking too highly of yourself, right? Thinking that you're more than you are. But that's not a complete description of pride because pride, what pride does is it makes everything about you. You turn everything about you with pride. Um, With pride, therefore, every victory is about you, but also every failure is about you as well. So when there's success, pride says, look at what I did, and everyone, can't you see what I did, and can't you see that you need me? Um, That's what pride does when there's a success. What happens when there's a failure? Pride makes you turn it all inwardly and say, oh, what a loser I am. I can't do anything right. Um, And I'm sure everyone's talking about this failure of mine. And for days and days, I know everyone's just going to be talking about how I messed up. And pride brings everything back to yourself. So you can be prideful when you feel um, either superior or when you feel inferior. And uh, that should be the next point there. Yeah, so you can feel pride when you're superior or when you are inferior. And last thing for us to know today, pride moves us to reject the limit that God gives to us of our need for God. And you might say, wait a minute, I can see where the pride of Um, superiority may make you think, I don't need God. What about that pride of inferiority? Well, what often happens with that pride of inferiority is we get determined and we say, I'm going to dig myself out of this hole. I'm going to do it. I can rise up. And we start just blazing a trail with no thought of what God is doing in my life. So we're going to talk about three ways specifically that pride denies our need for God. Um, and these, we're going to see these three needs, and they're just kind of core to the human heart. And they're all right here in Genesis chapter 11. So the first thing pride does is pride moves us to prove our value instead of receiving it from God. So look at at verse 4 again. We're going to look at this a couple of times, so just keep your eye on it. Verse 4, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make 
a name for ourselves. So they wanted to prove themselves. They wanted to think of themselves, well, look at what we did. And, and, and listen, I think that God in general wants us to think well of ourselves. He doesn't want us to be prideful in thinking of ourselves well. Sure, he wants us to know that we're sinners and we need grace. But God doesn't want us to think that we're terrible and we're miserable and we're no good for anything. I think God wants us to think well of ourselves. But the question is how? How does God want us to think well of ourselves? See, there's, this, there's a rush when you achieve something great and you think well of yourself. It, it feels good, right? Well, there's a greater rush that I want us to look at today. The, the disciple John, in John chapter 1, John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he writes... See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So let me talk about this verse. See, that word really means behold. Really understand what's going on. Behold it. Really know what is happening. Behold. What great love. What great love. And the, the actual language means from what country is this love? In other words, it's like from another planet. This is a love that John is, and his, everyone has never seen before. He's telling you, you've never seen this kind of love before. From what planet is this love? That we should be called children of God. And he's just overwhelmed by this. And so he, he says, and that is what we are. He, he's, he's blown away. He beholds it, what it really means. He's overwhelmed because of the great value that that shows that we have. And sometimes what I worry about myself is I just give lip service to that. Because we sing songs here in worship about being a child of God. And how wonderful that is that we're children of God. And what I worry about myself is I just give lip service to that. And I don't really behold the value that comes with being a child of God. And I want to encourage you to think about what this really means. And one of the best um, illustrations of the value that a child of God has is actually from Tim Keller. And he, he puts it like this. He says, imagine the king sleeping in his bed throughout the night. Who is the only person that can wake the king up at 3 a.m. asking for a glass of water? Well, it's not a servant, right? If a servant were to ask the king, wake up the king at 3 in the morning asking for a glass of water, that servant probably has a secret wish to spend a month in the dungeon, right? Because that is what would happen if a servant were to do that. Not even the queen can wake the king up in the middle of the night and ask for a glass of water because what the king, what's the king going to say? Get it yourself, yeah. <laughs> Who's the only one that can legitimately ask the king for a glass of water in the middle of the night? The king's child. For which the king will gladly get up and get 
a glass of water. Behold, you are a child of God. You are the only one the king will be glad to get up for in the middle of the night. And so, you have that access to the king of all creation. That's your value. And so, if you struggle with trying to prove yourself through accomplishments, through what you build, man, we do that all the time. I, I know I'm building something. You're building something. A career, a family, a portfolio, a college application, um, a, a family. You're building something. If you are struggling with trying to prove yourself through your accomplishments or what you're building, I just want to ask you, how often lately have you come to the king of the universe and just asked for that cup of water and just reflected on the value that you have that you can do that? That's one thing that helps us free, helps free us from, from pride. And, and when you do that, just asking the king for a cup of water, just remember the value you have. Now, you might not receive immediately what you're asking for. But know that the king is not turning you away. He's not telling you to get out of the room. He's listening. You're the only one that can get his attention, and he is listening to you. That is your value. And once you get that, that value, then getting value from other things, what you're building, your career, your accomplishments, your bank account, whatever, that just isn't as appetizing, is it? It's just not as appealing. It, it, it loses its, how it satisfies you once you know that you are valuable to the king of the universe. So, second thing that pride moves us to do is pride moves us to build security instead of trusting it with God. So look back to verse 4, the end of the phrase. He said, come let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches up to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, they fear something bad is going to happen. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They wanted security, didn't they? The problem with the way that they were seeking security is that they were doing so outside the limits that God had given them. How so? Well, God had given early people this limit. I want you to move about the earth. I want you to populate the earth. He tells uh, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, be fruitful. Fill the earth. When he starts over with Noah... He tells Noah and uh, Noah's children, be fruitful and fill the earth. I want the earth filled, God says. Now that isn't necessarily a rule for us today because we've already populated the earth. But back then it was a limit that God had placed on people. And the bottom line is this, God wants us to find security in him and not through our own ingenuity. If we think that we can outperform God in providing security for ourselves, we are foolishly prideful. 
There's a story um, of a of a woman, young woman who was uh, going to to she wanted to go into full time mission work, uh, and her parents knew this, and but they they counseled her. Will you please just put that on hold, get a job, work for a couple years, build up a bank account so that you have it as a backup plan? just in case the missionary work doesn't work out. And, you know, I'm all in favor of backup plans. I mean, um, I like backup plans. If we build backup plans within the limits that God gives to us, and we often exceed those limits in our backup plans, we're like, oh, man, I need savings, and I'm going to put money in savings, and sometimes we give money to savings before we give money what God asks us to give to him. Or we just try to work and work and work and work and work, and God says, I want you to take a day off, have a, have a Sabbath rest, and no, we've got to come up with this backup plan, God. And we live with outside, outside of these limits that God gives to us, building up our backup plans. Well, the parents tell this girl, please get, up a, back, get a backup plan. And uh, the, the young woman talked to her missions professor about this, and he said, this is what you need to go tell your parents. Tell your parents that we are all on this small little dot of a planet that is flying around this small little section of the Milky Way galaxy at tens of thousands of miles an hour, and there's asteroids and comets and meteors hurling around, and you think a bank account's going to give you some security? And, and, And of course, the point is this. I mean, ultimately, we are God's hands. And we can, we can try to come up with our backup plans. But ultimately, we're in God's hands. And this is what James knows deeply. And he writes, uh, James chapter 4, 13 through 15, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to do this or that or spend a year here, there, will carry on business and make money. Why do you ask that? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or we will do that. So wise planning is important if we do it within the limits God gives to us, his commands to us. If we start exceeding those commands, we've gone beyond the limits. And it's just foolish pride to say our wise planning will bring us real security because that real security comes from God. And finally, pride moves us to acquire God's blessings instead of receiving them as gifts. And how do we see that in this story? I want you to think about the tower that uh, they were building. What kind of tower... Probably was it. So if you think kind of historically and geographically, uh, the tower probably looked something uh, like this. See if we can get that on the screen. Something like that. Now, what is that? It's a what? Um, Yeah, Pyramid Chichen Itza? Yes. I, I don't know. That's a ziggurat. Right? It looked like a ziggurat, right? I chose that because I thought it looked like a ziggurat. You know, little stair steps up 
um, on the side and, and long stairs up in the middle. Ziggurat? All right. So that's, <laughs> that's a ziggurat. Um, there are stairs up the middle. And what are those stairs for? People often think, oh, well, those are for people to walk up. And ancient cultures built ziggurats, not necessarily so they could walk up those stairs, but so that the gods could walk down the stairs. And near the top of ziggurats, there was a, a, a room, a bedchamber. They thought the gods would, would stay in that bedchamber and be really comfortable. And... And they would be in a good mood because they're comfortable. And they'd walk down those steps to the people. And so what ziggurats, what their purpose was, was for people to try to appease the gods, make the gods happy so that the gods would come down and see their devotion, the people's devotion, and bless the people. And this is what's going on in Genesis chapter 11. Now their error wasn't that they wanted to be in touch with God. That's a good That's a good aspiration, their error was their, was their image of God. They created a God in their own image, a God that you could kind of make happy and get them in a good mood, and by doing so, have that God bless you. And their pride, they thought they could acquire God's blessings through their goodness instead of receive God's blessings through his goodness. And I can't think of many more practices that will kill your relationship with God more than trying to get God to bless you. Because when you make receiving God's blessings a product of what you're doing, what happens when you don't receive those blessings where you think, I must not be trying hard enough. I got to do more. And you try to do more, and you try to do more, and you, not only are you worshiping a false god, you completely wear yourself out. You burn yourself out. You live with guilt. You're filled with dread because you're afraid that God is angry with you. Instead of this, God promises, you already have my favor. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. If God is for us, which he is, and who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God blesses just because it's what he does. He blesses just because he loves you, because he loves you. So what is God's response in all this, in, in the, the Tower of Babel and building this, this city in Genesis 11? Remember that pivot, verse 5. This is the climax. The Lord came down. Why did he come down? Well, remember, this is a mocking story. And so part of it, the people are trying to build a tower. They think it's going to reach up to the heavens. Well, Moses is pointing something out. God had to come down because actually that tower was so small. He had to come down to actually see it. It was not a mountain, it was a molehill. So, question for us. When God looks 
at where I am putting my time, imagination, and effort. What does he think? Does he think, that's just not too impressive, because that's, that's what Moses is telling. Uh, so God just said, ah, it's not very impressive. I've got to go down there to see what it is. When, when God sees where we're putting all of our imagination, all of our heart, and all of our effort and energy, what does he think? God may be thinking, okay, I'm not all that impressed. But there's another reason that the Lord came down as well. God comes down because he cares. God came down so that he could save the citizens. And verse 6, when the Lord says, if they are able to do this, with the same language, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Like we said earlier, he wasn't seeing that as a threat. He was seeing that as something that would ruin them. That prideful arrogance of theirs that we can do everything all on our own. And God came down to save them. He mixed up their languages and he scattered them to save them. So think about a few takeaways from this story. Um, Pride blinds us to the existence of a better future than the the one we have planned. In our pride, we kind of prepare a future for ourselves. We dream it. We start making plans towards it. And pride can blind us to the fact that actually um, God may have something else in store. That is much better. Because I promise you that the people, when God scattered them, when they realized, oh, our building project completely failed, they probably weren't thinking that was a good thing. (laughs) They probably had a hard time realizing, okay, this might be for our good. So I just encourage you, you when when things go wrong, when when it seems like our plans are elusive, our, our future is elusive, to make room for humility that to see that God has a future much better that he's actually working you towards. And trust that. And trust that. Defeating pride, another idea here, defeating pride begins with understanding that what God saves us most from is, is ourselves. In other words, don't see God as the enemy to your future. Um, See the future that he is planning as your future. Don't be your worst enemy. And if your plans, like I said, if your plans aren't coming together, instead of seeing that as an assault on your value, I'm not good enough to get me there, see that as God about bringing, see that as God bringing about something better. Uh, And he's just saving you from yourself. And defeat pride by focusing on the city that God is building. What do I mean by that? You see, the rest of the Bible unpacks God's response to this failed building project. People were building a city. God says, I'm going to build a city. And before his crucifixion, Jesus Christ started making these promises about the Holy Spirit who would come to believers. And after his death and resurrection, at the celebration of the the Jewish festival of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down on those who followed Jesus Christ. 
And they began speaking in foreign languages to them. But instead of there being confusion, instead of no one being able to understand, something different happened because of the Holy Spirit. This time, everyone around from all these four nations could actually understand what was being spoken. And they came together. There was this unity that the Holy Spirit brought together. God says, I'm building a city. And here he goes. He's uniting the nations. He's building this community. And it's a complete reversal of Babel. See, God isn't about each of us building our own little city, doing our own little thing, and just kind of doing it simultaneously. God is about inviting us to this much bigger storyline that he has of the city that he is building and inviting us to be a part of it. Next week, I want to talk about how Hope Church can do that right here in the Bay Area community. I hope you'll come back for that. But to to finish today, I want to... get a glimpse of the city that God is building. And when, when you're frustrated over your failures, when you're frustrated over your plans, when pride is kind of getting a hold of your heart, I want you to focus on this city that God says, I will build. And the description is in, Re- in Revelation chapter 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place. It's now, it's no longer way up here. It has come down among the people, and he will dwell with them in this new city that God is building. And you see, that is security. That is security. You can count on that. And you may know if you read the rest of Revelation 21, the beginning of Revelation 22, there is a river that flows through this city. And Revelation 22, verse 2 says, On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. God says, I'm going to do it. I will bring everything to its good and wonderful end. As Julian of Norwich once said, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And God will do that here on earth, and he'll do it in your life. So depend on him fully. Let's pray. Lord, you are the king. You are the king of creation. You are the king of the universe. You will see that your plans come to fruition. And we want to thank you for that vision of that city. And we want to thank you for the invitation to be a part of building that and and starting now and being a community of faith that seeks to be a part of what you're doing and and build something that will last in this world, that will last for all time. Forgive us of our pride when we make our life just about ourselves. Open us up to that bigger picture, Lord. 
you bless us so that we can be a blessing to others. Help that to reside in our heart. Help us to know our value being your children. Dependent on you for everything, Lord. That's okay. We want to depend on you. We want to come before you like little children. Not with arrogance, not thinking highly about what we can do on our own, but rather desperate and asking for your mercy and your grace and receiving your blessings. Make that so today. In Jesus' name, amen.